Hey guys, what's up? Um, Before I start the intro music, I'm just going to say I'm so excited to have Ali on the podcast this week. He's just a multi-talented man, really. He's toured the country with Just for Laughs. He's toured his one-man show, Muslim Interrupted, internationally. He's the host of CBC Laugh Out Loud. Literally, there is nothing that he can't do. Um, But we did have some audio issues, which made me chop it up a decent amount. But I'm still so excited about this episode. There's lots of good things in here. And yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. drink much you're not like self-medicating you're not uh no i actually i bought a cbd pen recently um from this i'm gonna sound like such a loser are they called weed stores what are they called dispensaries dispensary sure <laughs> don't ask old uncle al for old- <laughs> i'm 100 And uh, I bought this thing and I was like, this is great. I'm like, this is going to relieve all my symptoms. I'm not going to give a shit about COVID when I'm smoking this CBD vape and, or when I'm vaping this pen, not smoking. What am I saying? Uh, And it had THC in it. And I was like, so worried. I was like, how much THC is in it? They're like, no, no, no. It's just enough to activate the CBD. And I've, I paid $60 for it. And it's just been sitting in my room. I'm like, I haven't used it at all. Cause it has like like, I don't know, like very little THC yeah. in it. It freaks me out. Whenever, whenever, I, like I can't, my thing with drinking and like smoking weed, the reason I, I don't do it is because I, I get really anxious when I feel like I'm not in control of like myself or like my body, especially if my, if I start feeling lightheaded, um, I need to be in a really, I need to be in an environment that I feel very safe in or like comfortable, like parties that have biscuits I'm not, I'm not drinking at a party that only has alcohol because I don't trust anybody else in that room. Like there needs to be food. There needs to be somebody there that I know will put me in an ambulance if, if things go tits up. I mean, I'm desperate to know where this all comes from. What kind of horrific parties have you been to that made this, that made this your reality? You know, how many people have been I zero? <laughs> I think it's the fact that I haven't been to any parties that's, make letting my imagination run wild with how parties go the reason that i was so interested to have you on the podcast was because you're somebody who i really get along with at shows and i feel like i don't know that much about do you know what i mean so i'm just so curious to know about uh like your how did you decide that you wanted to get into comedy because i know you started air quote i guess like later in life um how did you make that decision? Was there like a come to Jesus moment for you? Did it happen slowly over time or like what drove you to get to, to start doing stand up? I guess. Uh, I guess it was a come to Jesus in the moment. My, um, my interest in doing comedy was for another purpose altogether. My, I was a chef and, uh, and a caterer and a cooking instructor. And I had one focus in life and that was to be uh, a, a, a chef uh, slash chef host on the Food Network. That was the goal. There was like nothing else I wanted. I would stop at nothing until it happened. It was very, very pathetic. In fact, you know, the phone would ring. The Food Network. It was always like I was doing all these auditions, and I was convinced that this would be my life. And then, you know, it's you feel more comfortable, obviously, when you're in control of a situation. So I was like, how do I? 
take control of something that I had no control about. So I was like, one, one of the things I thought I could do is start doing stand-up comedy. Um, and, and the goal was, because I had been hosting weddings a couple of year for the last few years prior to that. And then the goal was, let me get up in front of an audience. Let me treat them like a studio audience. Maybe make some jokes about food. Maybe, you know, grow my confidence in front of uh, audiences in general. And uh, this will just get me closer to my goal. I had actually asked a friend of mine. He, he ran an, a one hour a week community uh, television, community television programming station, whatever collection of words those are and whatever order they go in. You know what I mean? Community television show. And so he had me on for a segment and uh, it went well. You know, I took him on a tour of places where I buy groceries and, and uh, neighborhood. And we're talking to people and talking to him. And I was like, I was really in my element. And he was like, dude, that was amazing. My producer loved it. I was like, great. Can we do, can we do this weekly or monthly? He's like, oh, no, 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 dude. Uh, I, I could maybe have you again next year. I could have you on again next year. I was like, next year? How does that help me? But, you know, the South Asian community is, is large enough that there's enough people on, on this weekly show to fill up 60 minutes that they don't need me back. So I was like, ugh. And that's what drove me to comedy in the end. I was like, I need some other outlet. I need some other place. And I don't know, stand-up was just like, it was just in my head. I'd come out of a horrible relationship. I was living with a woman for a year that it kept getting worse and worse and it was affecting my mental health. And I was just like a, a bird out of a cage. I was like, all right, where do we go? How do we fly? So between coming out of a bad relationship and wanting to really focus on my goals, getting on the food network, I was like, let's give this stand-up comedy thing a try. So I was just like this bird out of a cage looking for new experiences, looking to regain the happiness that I had lost uh, over that past year. And so combine my desire to live and embrace life again with this idea of like, I'm going to get on the food network and this thought that maybe stand up is a good way to practice it. And that's where the, the open mic life, you know, began. And then the Jesus moment was my first set. I had such a great time on stage. Jesus himself was on stage speaking to me. It felt and he was like, maybe you do this, maybe you do this. And it was the best. It was really great. Interesting. I wanted to ask how your first set was, the first set you ever did. Um, it was it was actually pretty good. Like everybody good meaning like not in quality or delivery at all, but in just the way that the audience was very accepting and kind and generous with their laughter. Yeah. That's but I think that's that's the way it is for most comics, right? Like your first set is great. Um, and then your second set, you just totally fall on your ass. And it's just about, oh, how do I get back to that point again? Because I feel like I had something. It's heroin. It's heroin. It's chasing yeah. the dragon uh, <laughs> and simultaneously trying to get the mon monkey off your back for your entire career. I have so much fascination i'm not even going to say respect because that's not accurate but i have so much fascination with people who get on stage and bomb the first time and go can't wait to get back up there i'm gonna get better how do you know that how do you a room full of people thought you were awful what makes you go i'm gonna do I don't know people like that years years of being awful and they're still like no man they'll see they'll see i don't know it's quite remarkable <laughs> Oh God, 
God bless those people though. Honestly, it, uh, it gives you something to talk about at the dinner table. You know, when you're like talking to other comics, you're like, who are the lunatics that we should talk about that we should drag. Um, I was going to say that your come to Jesus moment, Jesus literally being there when I was, when I was 16, um, I was a little bit religious and this is going to sound so psychotic, but there was this man at this open mic that I was at that literally looked like Jesus who like came up to me after the show and like gave me a compliment. And then I like turned around and he was just gone. And I literally was like, that man was Jesus. Like that must've been Jesus. He was just a psychotic open micer who was just on his way to get a shawarma before his next gig or something. But I was like, that's gotta be Jesus. The fact that this guy who looks like Jesus is going to get food from the region of, you know, Palestine. He's going to eat shawarma. What are the odds? What are the odds? Guys, that had to have been Jesus. He didn't say burger, right? Didn't it just probably? <laughs> <laughs> um, was your dive into religion uh, family influence or was that you just trying to? It was to totally family influenced. I went to a Catholic elementary school. Uh, I did like the confirmation, the whole nine. And then uh, when I started doing comedy is actually when my belief, compo- like it just dissipated because I had seen so many comedians who were like atheists. And I was like, I was like, what? I was like, what am I doing? Like, they have great points. This is a, this is a one-sided argument. Great. I'm sold. Forget it. And then I just literally threw it in the, in the garbage and, and haven't looked back since. Really? Huh? That easy. Mm. Away. Yeah. Any, I don't know how many um, religious viewers you have of this podcast, but uh, <laughs> they are definitely not sending their children willingly in the stand-up comedy after that. But yeah, if there was ever anything that's going to rob you of your connection to religion, it's got to be. That. Although there are, that, that Christian comedy circuit is massive. It's massive, right? So it could still work out, but uh, I don't know how it does. It's pretty phenomenal. I, I, I feel like those comedians are not necessarily believers like I don't, did you watch crashing yeah I mean, it's so believable that pete holmes would be a practicing christian and then yeah. day to day have like the david tells and the nick de and the bill burrs go yeah yeah yeah. you really believe in that yeah you know like people just demeaning you on a daily basis and then you hearing their arguments and sure enough garbage can yeah but also like starting comedy like hearing comedians like when I started I just it was mostly like I was just watching adults like shit on their love life talk about like just the worst parts of their life and it really makes you not want to believe in anything to be honest with you like it will shatter any hope that you have uh like marriage I don't believe in that anymore there's a lot of things that I've stopped believing in since doing comedy Oh gosh, what is what is the sales pitch? What's the benefit? Why even do comedy? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know what? That's a great question. It we is go around people, shitting on everything. People say that comedians get like free therapy, basically, right? Being on stage and just sort of, you know, getting their feelings out, like like you would with a therapist, just treating a room like a but. Uh, but I don't know. I guess. But then when they go overboard, it's like, okay, that's scary. Now the audience is now scared. So we're going to have to dial it back. So it's never really fully therapy, right? Yeah. yeah. I think that'd be a great heckle. Somebody in the audience just going like, oh, what a fucking therapist. What else you got? 
I'm fine. I don't need like if somebody was like, what are you trying to get free therapy, bud? Is that what you're trying to fucking do? You'd feel like so she feels so shitty. Anyway, no heckler. People and you're yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're just being vulnerable. Come on, I didn't uh, I I got that heckle once, not that one, but when I was like um test driving i guess there's a better word for it but anyway i was workshopping workshopping my show in edinburgh the show i i you know it, it all worked out i toured it across canada and i was very proud of it but my time in edinburgh was awful on a daily basis mm. for different reasons but one night um but i encourage you to go it's 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 a okay. crushing character building experience but anyway look we've already turned off the religious We've already turned off, you know, uh, people seeking therapy on stage. Let's not. We're here for the. This podcast is for the dead inside. Is what who's who it's for, really. And listen, nothing will kill you quite like Edinburgh. It's really it's awful. Not for everybody. Some people have a great time, but a guy. I'm like, I've got this like crafted show, which is different from my comedy, which is a little looser, and I can dip out of a joke and lose that joke and. Uh, come back, do jokes out of order. But this show is really, it was like chronological. So it's in order. And I'm like a third of the way into the chronology of the story. And this other guy, brown guy, Muslim guy like me goes, yeah, 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 yeah. We get all this. We get all this. Let's, let's go. What else happened? What the fuck? I, I was so shaken. I was so shy. I didn't even know how to deal. I didn't even know how to handle that heckle. But I guess he had experienced all the same Muslim experiences as me. That he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, and also, you know, Muslims have been established in England way longer than they have been in Canada. I've had these experiences and documented these experiences. So for him, I was like just doing a bunch of hack shit about life that many people have lived. Like this is nothing. Um, wow. It was quite a heckle, quite a heckle. And did so, you find, like after that, where did you go from there? Like, did you change anything about your next show or? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Okay. I also walked uh, a father and son, Brown duo. They came to the show pretty excited. As soon as I started talking about my love for pork, they got out. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's not very open-minded to other people's experiences, but they were like, they didn't want to hear this. So it was, a, I don't know, it was a daily fucking nightmare in Edinburgh. But you should go. Again, I reiterate, you should go. That experience. I don't think I'm going to. You know what? I, I don't like the people of Edinburgh now. I, I don't even care. I don't even really know how to pronounce the name. Is it Edinburgh? 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 Edinburgh, yeah. Edinburgh? Yeah. Edinburgh. It sounds obnoxious. I would never, I would never repeat that to somebody. I, I feel hate that like name supportive of me and I appreciate it thank you I am yeah um so did you feel did you have your children before or after you started doing stand-up I had them after I started doing stand-up and I when I got married to my wife um, my daughters came into my life they're from her, uh, her her first marriage when I say that on stage I do a spit after I <laughs> first marriage and uh that always works it always lands for some reason and then I have to be. Is it like a ritual thing? Like anytime you, you think of your ex, you just spit. You just. It is to the point where I'm like, I'm not going to do it, but I still have to mention that it's something I do. It's like, so it's the thing. It just goes hand in hand. Gotcha. But it's fun. That guy, we always say that um, his um, deadbeatness, 
I don't know if that's a, a noun, uh, but his, his deadbeat uh, vibes and his ineptitude as a father and a husband have helped me make, create the life that I have today. So I can't really shit on that guy. You know, you can't, you can't look a gift horse in the mouth or whatever. I don't know what the saying is, but he really. That is, so, sweet. That is so nice. This podcast well, is not for the dead inside. Actually, I take that back. That was so back. wholesome and, and nice. Thank you. Uh, he, uh, no, he gave me two wonderful daughters who are my daughters and they, um, they're absolutely lovely. And, um, yeah, they, he, he also, this, this is not all him now, but because my daughters came into my life. So this is a story I tell where I did like a whole reversal on, on my approach to comedy. I was doing like a lot of bar gigs in Laval, LaSalle, like this, you know, kind of macho areas of, uh, well, not macho areas, but macho, macho people live in these areas, you know, Greeks, Italians, uh, Portuguese people. These are who are coming to the shows, mo- mainly male. So my comedy, you know, as the pandering comic that I was, that's what I was doing. I was like, how will I make these guys laugh? I know it. I'll talk about my balls and that's going to be hilarious. So it was like dirty comedy. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that is the reason I will never perform or I hate performing in Vaughn because that is all who is there. And I'm like, I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how to win you guys over. Anyway, sorry. I just trailed off there for a minute. No, no. I, <laughs> I'm I, mad. I, I tapped into some, um, some trauma a little bit there and I get it. I get it. I remember Deanne Smith, who I respected so much. I was like, are you going to do the show? Cause this producer is looking for a show for this crowd and you know, whatever. Uh, Riviere de Prairie, some sort some area, exactly the Vaughn, you know, of, of, of Montreal. And uh, Deanne Smith was like, you know what? I've realized something. Not all stage time is good stage time. She goes, I don't get anything from performing there. And I was like, what? I thought all stage time was great. I thought everything was good. I thought this was, you, know, you just get up there and it's going through the motion. It doesn't matter. And uh, she was right. She's absolutely right. And sometimes you're not going to get anything out of it. And that's not your audience. And that's not what you're trying to cultivate um but i was trying to get gigs wherever i could in montreal and then i got married and i moved to toronto the day after my wedding so i'm all of a sudden a dad right away i've got these girls who i think they were five and seven four and six or five and seven at the time and so my five-year-old leaning back on the couch one day has the ipad on her on her lap and she's like how do you spell your last name, Papa? And I was like, oh, it's Hassan. I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, I just want to look up some of your comedy. And all of a sudden I was like, what the, how many cock and ball references have I made over the years? Is any of that filmed? Is any of that out there? Luckily, I'm also very bad, especially then. I was very bad at managing my own career. So I hadn't even put up any of my cock and ball stuff. It wasn't even on YouTube, right? I'm not like the comics of today who were like a comedian within a month of starting and they've got videos. I hadn't done any of that. So I got lucky there, but I was also like, who I want to be as a comedian and also being like, you know, real fish out of water situation in the sense that like, you know, a year prior, I'm like getting to know the bouncer at a, at an after hours club. And I'm like a part of that scene. And now I'm like, a father of two and I have a, I have a wife and I'm like living in suburban Toronto. It was really like, it took some getting used to this new identity and I welcomed it and I wanted it, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't come that easily. So there was a lot of comedy. There was a lot of comedy constantly, either in things my kids would ask me or 
uh, once my, um, I had gone back to Montreal and my wife was like, Sonia wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh shoot, what's happening? And it's the five-year-old and she goes, I found your dirty magazines. And I was like, I, fuck, I don't have dirty magazines since I was like 20, what dirty magazine? I was like, maybe in some of my moving boxes or something. I was like, oh honey, I don't. And now I'm like, why would my wife put her on to embarrass me like this? I don't know, like why are we doing? Well, my wife was laughing her ass off. It was a Now magazine. And in the back of Now magazine, which is like our Toronto, you know, our monthly, you know, alternative magazine, free paper, there's all those like women with like pasties stuck onto their genitals going, call now, you know, um, women are waiting. And so the last five pages pay for the back. So she goes, I found your dish. So I was like, I got to put that into the, there was things like that happening every day, every single day, something like that would happen. And then I was like, I, this is my challenge to turn that into my comedy. It's still funny. It doesn't have to be dirty, even though it's a dirty magazine, but it didn't have to be anything like dirty. And, um, and I just changed my comedy and I basically became a clean comic in that period. And I, uh, I can't, I never regret it. I'll never regret it. And I, I encourage it with other like comics who ask me about comedy, but you, it's tough because it's people's journey also. Like if you want to be that dirty comic, there are, there is a place for you. Right. But then I also have comics who are dirty go, Hey man, I'm wondering if you can introduce me to your boss at CBC. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm to, uh, I want to do a set on that show you host and i'm like have you ever even listened to the cbc yeah <laughs> did you say do you listen to the cbc yeah yeah do you know what the cbc is even you just talked about your wife's uh, you know vagina hair getting in your teeth for five minutes what do you think you're going to offer the cbc anyway so right. Only get in the way of people's journeys but if people do want to get more television and radio play and all that it like it makes sense yeah. but but yeah you know yeah I uh I struggle with that a lot actually especially in like writing material sometimes because I know that most road gigs prefer dirty material and they prefer I guess loud material I think you just have to seem like somebody that they respect and I don't think I embody that in many ways. <laughs> I'm slouching. I'm like a young woman with like little to no life experience. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think that they really, they're never like, I'm so excited to hear what she has to say. Right. Like just out the gate <laughs> and writing uh, material is um, I have found that going to small towns and doing jokes um and trying to play to that crowd serves does not serve me at all performing in Toronto. And sometimes when I try to transfer those jokes to Toronto, the audience can like see through it right away. It's like, oh, you just kind of, it's topical or it's like, okay, you just kind of made a little bit of a dirty reference. Like you don't need that crutch in Toronto, but going to small towns, I definitely need that crutch. And it's something that like, I think if you start writing dirty, it's probably hard to stop. Whereas like, if you just try to stay clean cleaner then uh, then you'll be fine like writing it for for forever well there's two you know i think of as you're talking about this brian regan i had learned brian regan massive massive comic huge following he used to write 
everything that came to mind. And he is a dirty, foul-mouthed human being in life, but he doesn't want his comedy to be dirty. So then he'd go mm -hmm. back. Now he takes a look at it with fresh eyes and goes, okay, how do I express this in a way that's not dirty? How do I get rid of this? And he, that was his way of trimming. Cut out this word. This F word doesn't even serve a purpose. This doesn't work. How do I say that? And then maybe I'll just make a face here instead. And you, and you look at Brian Regan, most of it is making a face instead. And Brian Regan's yeah. a guy like, when you're done with him, you go, did that guy even swear? Like, you don't know. You don't realize it at the time. Yeah. The other guy I think of is Jim Gaffigan. Mm -hmm. It's so hilarious to think of Jim Gaffigan alongside one of my favorite comedians was Greg Giraldo. And they started together and they would do gigs together. And so you're in like some fucking seedy sports bar in Long Island doing sets. And Giraldo would be doing, you know, something about Colombian hookers or whatever. And then Jim Gaffigan being like, you ever notice how soup only comes in two colors? Like people are like, what the fuck? <laughs> So I just think of like, there's gotta be a way, you know, there's gotta be a way to find that way to entertain. And, and I think sometimes it is about like, I'm not doing these gigs anymore. I'm not doing these, but, but I think, you know, you, you gotta have your small town material in your pocket. You develop it in the small town and then you keep it. And you go, oh, I know this crap, I can use those. And then you're like, ah, Toronto, apparently savvy or big city. Let's try these, you know, I, I think you, I personally think some people will be like, no, 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 you are, you got your material, you're the comedian, you let the crowd come to you, you don't change for anybody. And I know comics like that, and they have found a way to do it. But for me, I'm always like, you know, I, I was always like, let me have my smaller shows, you know, rural really getting too much into the rural areas personally, but, you know, smaller towns and then city. And then uh, I found over time, I get to these small towns. And I'm like, I don't even remember one dirty joke that I used to tell. I used to think that I had A plus dirty joke material. I can't remember one, one joke of it. It's all been like the kids and then it built up from there. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Now I just hope that they'll be like, oh yeah, I listen to the CBC. I've heard of that guy. And, and then I'll just fly on that. And they won't be like right yeah i guess i guess the dream would be to um and it's probably impossible in canada if you don't have a tv show but uh getting enough content out there that people yeah. who have already seen it that do live in these small towns will come out to see you and support you instead of you kind of having to bend the other way exactly exactly yeah. and that that's tv show or radio show or some sort of known thing that's I, I, you can't say it's critical but but to have a large following across the country i don't know any other way right now this is an interesting question because i feel like we both started at different um like kind of polar opposite points in our life do you ever feel like you don't deserve success do you ever feel guilt towards getting an opportunity and do you ever not trust your own success like do you ever like doubt it what is your self-doubt process like do you have any what is your self-esteem like self-esteem is not great it's not okay. great a, i've had friends tell me like do you can you please remember who you are and what you've done sometimes you sometimes you act like a fucking open micer who's accomplished nothing and i'm like oh yeah that's true. like i have to walk my back myself back through my own life sometimes 
Um, I think there is, <clears throat> I definitely have a lot more confidence in my abilities than I've ever had in my life. And, and that, you know, what you're talking about, I, I think is that imposter syndrome. People are like, I don't deserve this. Why did I get this? I definitely had that. The first level of some success I had was getting on this comedy panel on the George Strombolopoulos show. So that was 2011, 2012. Um, I went through like a crazy audition process. There's four different levels of auditions. The first audition, I was shaving and I got this mole on my upper lip and I cut the mole. I sliced it with the razor, just not paying attention, just quickly. Get, I was like, what the fuck? And it just, I don't know if you ever sliced a mole, bleeds for a while. Yeah. Okay, so. Mm. I actually just got moles removed literally like two days ago. Disgusting, okay, painful process. Yeah. Maybe if I could talk to your male mole remover at some point, um, maybe we can exchange numbers. But I sliced it and you know the bleeding, it could be like five hours. And so the first audition, I was like, well, this is fucking ridiculous. I had like, I had like a piece of tissue, you know, and I was just dabbing the entire audition. And uh, the first audition was flashcards. They show you flashcards and it's, what, what comes to your mind? And it's a flashcard of the Dragon's Den crew. It's a flashcard of Jean Chrétien. So, like, does this person have even the slightest bit of knowledge of Canadian politics, right? Um, and the whole time I'm like, that is Arlene Dickinson. <laughs> and then, and, and I told them, I go, listen, I'm really sorry. This is ridiculous. I hate to come into an audition with an apology, but uh, my, my upper lip is bleeding because I cut it. And they're like, oh, you can barely notice. And then I, like on my piece of paper, just a hundred dots of blood. Can you barely notice? Oh, that's so good. I was, I was so worried. It was awful. It was like comedy at work. I was like, this is, I got to write about this someday. I've obviously blown the audition. Um, like I can see with my own eyes, the blood just sort of come. And then I got a second audition. I'm like, these people have no standards, obviously, right? Like the guy bleeds out his upper lip and they're like, yeah, we want him. No, I and think you were so good that they were just like, we don't care if he comes in with a bleeding earlobe. We're, we're taking this guy. We don't care. I think, I think they were like, he was a bit off his game. Could have been the bleeding lip. Should we see him a second time? <laughs> second time, well, third time, it was just in an office with a person who was like, well, we just want to have you in to see, you know, you're in our, in the, in the end of our group here, we're, we're, we're getting to a choice. And, uh, you know, you, you might be crazy. I don't know, we might, we, we want to know if maybe you're crazy or not. I was like, okay, so now it's an audition to show that you're not crazy. I'm like, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do to prove that to you. And then the fourth audition, which was like live under the lights in the studio and all and I, I got the gig and I was like the lead. We wound up doing 160 episodes and it was a panel, a comedy panel. And there was three of us, a rotating chair of, of two or three uh, different women who are uh, phenomenal um, sketch performers. One of them was Jen Robertson, who was in Schitt's Creek. I saw her the other night in Winnipeg. One is Naomi Sneakus. And then occasionally a third person would come in, Pat Thornton or somebody. And then we had a guest chair. So every comedian from Toronto or visiting from anywhere had come through, some authors had come through, but I was there for 160 episodes and it was a big deal. But I'm also well aware that 
CBC is about checking boxes, right? CBC is the place where you have Hanuman Singh and Strombolopoulos and you have these, they celebrate this ethnic diversity, but it's also like, okay, he's, uh, he's brown and he's Muslim. That's also a marginalized community. Uh, let's get him, you know? And so those, the, those are the jokes that people make about the CBC. Like, oh man, you were only brown and Muslim. Had you been a lesbian and handicapped, then you would have got the job, like these kind of things. So then you hear that enough times and you go, oh, I guess I wasn't really deserving of the job. Of course I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I saw Sean Cullen in the interview process. Of course, I'm not deserving of the job. But, and you have just nothing but self-doubt. And then everything is filtered through that lens. I don't deserve this. I don't really deserve this, but I got it. But I'm not going to say no to it. That, that's weird, right? I should still. And then you get to a point, or I got to a point where I'm like, man, they, they trust me to host Canada Reads. It's a national platform for one week, Two million people tune in television, radio. It's a big deal. Like they wouldn't have done that. And then they asked me to do it a second time, then a third time, right. then a fourth time this year. Then they're asking me to guest host on Q, Q's arts and culture show that has got a huge platform in Canada, outside of Canada. And then finally, after multiple times doing that, you finally say to yourself, well, they're not going to bend over backwards to hire a guy just on a sort of a, a minority hire, whatever you want to call it, for these great high profile shows. Obviously, I have some ability to do a job well. And it takes years sometimes if you are insecure about who you are and what you're getting for some confidence to set in and go, OK, at least I know I'm a good listener. I know I'm good on radio and I know I can do a good job doing this. And uh, so finally at the age of 48, after being in comedy for almost 15 years, 14 years plus, I'm like, okay, I'm confident in what I'm doing. Now the stage is amazing because the stage will still rob you of your confidence and make you feel like it's month one of your, if you're not right. practicing. And that's where we are right now. You yeah. get on, you're like, this is gonna be great. I know it because I have this confidence. I know what, and then you get on, you're like, Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I had a good run. Maybe I don't need to go back to comedy. You know, maybe this isn't so good. Right. Um, that's interesting that you mentioned it's because uh, that they're checking boxes, right? I think that um, I can relate to that, especially because I'm like a young woman. So people like I have been told like, oh, they're just hiring you for this because you're a woman. And it's like, yeah, but I know so many funny women that are equally as deserving of these opportunities. So, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe they're looking for a woman, but they could have gone with like the hundreds of other women that I am aware of, you know? So there's always that to lean on. And I think um, for me, my confidence is more with, um, I, I don't trust opportunities. Like I don't, I don't trust, like if I get something or somebody offers me, like I just did the JFL tapings totally a dream come true something that you know every comedian I think wants and is working towards sure. and uh I was so happy to be there so grateful to be there and then after I went into this state of like paranoia where I was like what if something happens and like it doesn't get to air on tv now I don't have this credit and I think it just I don't know I think maybe for me it speaks to how much I rely on accomplishing things in my career for my own happiness and like general mental sanity which yeah. maybe I need to reframe um but I just don't trust success like I don't I don't trust it until it's like in front of me and I fully believe it you know 
And if somebody yeah. comes up to me after a show and they're just like, we thought you were so funny. It's like, I believe that. And then if like a club booker comes up to me and is just like, I think you're really funny. We want to work with you. I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, but I, until like it's on paper, maybe you're going to see somebody else that you're going to like better. I don't know. It's like, I just don't trust it. I think that's very healthy. I think that's amazing that you have that okay. perspective because, you know, uh, if we just focus on like radio, television, film, the amount of things that, you know, hit the, as they say, cutting room floor and never make it to the screen. There's a story. I can't give you any context. I've totally forgotten about who it was. I, I, I befriended a director uh, many years ago, he passed away and he had told me this story. Now, I don't remember who it was about, but he goes, never pull or, or I recorded, I, I filmed this movie with him and he, and I was like, uh, maybe I'll see you at the screening. He goes, no, maybe, no, maybe you're in the film. Don't worry. You're not a whatever. Let's say the guy's name was Alain Simard. You're not an Alain Simard. I'm like, what? I don't understand that reference. He goes, oh. Very famous story, Alain Simard, the premiere of this film, whatever it was, brought 19 of his closest family members and friends to the premiere, sat through the premiere. He was cut from the film. Nobody had told him. So everybody's waiting for Alain. You know, everyone's like waiting. And it was never, oh, he never oh my God. Oh my God. I would run away. I would literally move to another country and like drown myself. Like, I don't even know. Not that he should have done. Like, that's totally okay. But just me personally, the amount of shame that I would feel. Dude, your tuxedo oh is God. on, for God's sake. You have a tuxedo. You've called your parents. <laughs> so proud of you. You know what I mean? You're in a premiere. There's a red carpet. It's awful. It's awful and it's shameful. And a lot of the blame lies on the fucking director, somebody to tell them, oh, God, dude, you didn't make a something. Movie. Yeah. But in the end, you know, <sighs> When you're making a movie, you realize people have a hundred different things going on. They can't always worry about you, who was going to be in three scenes and that was in zero scenes. So anyway, that stuck with me in a big way. That stuck with me in a huge way. And I always felt the same as you do until I'm watching myself on the screen or watching myself in a show or hearing myself on radio. I'm not in that. I'm not, it hasn't really happened. So don't go promoting something. Guys, next spring, look out. Your boy's going to, you know, impress the hell out of you when I'm in this and that. I never do that. Um, the exception might be like, you know, recorded a debaters, for example, you know, in Cornwall this weekend. Had an excellent time. Thank you to the, the team. Because that happened. We did record it. But I'm not trying to promote anything until somebody comes to me and tells me, it's happening, it's on this date and you're in it and okay. Um, so that lack of trust, so never mind film and television, but same thing with bookers and all that. Dude, I, I've been auditioning for so many things, so many things, especially in the food world. My food world thing that was a, my original goal never even happened. And I've been right on the doorstep, me and somebody else, me and somebody else. And it used to be, Ali, they went with somebody else because they thought that they were more qualified uh, and more experienced. <sighs> And then over time, over this 10 year span, the whole thing flipped on its head where it's like Ali, they went with the other person because they felt like, you know, he was more of a lay person as far as food goes. And they were worried like with you, if you might bring too much sort of technical knowledge. Ali, are you, 
that's happened twice where I was like, the concern was that I might use a term like, you know, uh, mise en place. And then everybody's what? I don't, oh God, I'm turning off the food. Network. I, I no longer can watch the food network. The guy used a term uh, brunoise or something. And I don't know what the hell's going on. Can't watch this anymore. So I've been like very, very disheartened to watch all that, but it's the same thing. I go into the auditions and I go, I'll do my best, but I'm not going to care. I'm not going to mm. care because I used to care so much. I used to care so much. And I used to be like, they said they like me. And they said they, they, they want to build this show around me and I could be the brand of the show. And then nothing. And I'm like, oof, boy, that person right. who I told, uh, that person who I, uh, you know, just vomited all that excitement to must be like, wow, that's embarrassing. And you know what? It is fucking embarrassing. <laughs> That's, that's correct. And I think that uh, obviously the more that happens and because it happens to people in the entertainment industry, obviously more than I think any other career out there, which is like, you're like 90% in the door and then something happens and it's just, it's not yours anymore. It's so hard to disassociate from that. You start promising yourself like the money you're going to get or like the accolades that you're going to get. And then they're just like, yeah, we went to like, I, um, Last year, I auditioned to be the warm-up comedian for Family Feud. And that was going to be huge for me because not only does it pay extremely well, um, it would have probably changed my life because uh, literally because of the money. And when I went into the audition, it was me and one other comedian. And I had found out that they were like looking for a woman to do this. And I was just like, okay, I was like, let's, let's bring it. Let's see what happens. I had never thought like the other, the other person that's doing this is already a warm-up comedian for several other shows. One, two, um, they're probably great friends with everybody that works on the production. Uh, and three, you've literally never done this in your life. So don't set the expectations so high that like, you're going to be so phenomenally good at, like I was way overconfident for what I went out there and I started talking about my parents' divorce. I was like, what makes you think that they're going to, it's a CBC crowd. It's a warm up. It's a family show. And you're opening with divorce and you're over here. So part of it is like, you have to just understand a little bit. And they're like, <laughs> the producer pulled me aside or no, sorry. He called me a couple of days later and he was like, like I already gotten like my friend in on, I was like, Oh my God. I was like, the studio was so cool. Like, this is such a cool thing. Like you know, kind of talking about to her. And then they called me and they were like, hey, they went with this other person. And they were just like, yeah, they're like, just a side note, maybe just like, don't open with divorce. They were like, the other guy was just a little bit more, um, you know, friendly, more family oriented. And I just was probably this dark, sarcastic, I don't know, <laughs> demon, I guess. That was like, I love that just story. shooting on a whole life in front of a, a CBC crowd, anyway. That's such a great crowd, but also uh, I love that they gave you that feedback because sometimes yeah, it's just it was like, great. Yeah, that's good feedback, uh, which now retrospectively, you're like, oh, I really should have picked up on that. But, you know, that's not you're starting off, especially in having these new experiences. We're not looking objectively at things. We don't have those experiences. But I um, I think that that's, you know, it's a. Uh, I remember, you know, you just said like the booker said, you're really funny. We'd like to work with you. And you're like, literally before that booker reaches the door, they could meet somebody else. I always think like yeah. that. I always think like, okay, sure. And, and then they're, they're almost like, 
Juliana, it can work in your favor because then sometimes they're like, why isn't this person that excited to work with me? And then the power <laughs> dynamic switches sometimes, you know? Right. I remember right. doing a, uh, an audition for a Food Network show. It was full day Saturday, full day Sunday. On Saturday, the Food Network head from Canada was there. And then on Sunday, a Food Network exec from New York flew in. So this was going to be a Food Network Canada and like .ca.com thing, this project. I was the only one being considered for the host. It was just me. And I was still like tempering my expectations, but I really got along with the Food Network exec from, from the U.S. She's a New York Rangers fan. She's a hockey fan. We we're talking about the Habs and the Rangers. And um, I was still smoking cigarettes at the time. We were having cigarette breaks together. And I was like, this, is, this feels like really good. This feels like... Uh, something where you know I, I could say I could find my home in this this show and this thing. Anyway, uh, in the time that they were deciding to put this thing on the air, a new Food Network exec showed up in the U.S. and they wanted to leave their mark uh, on you know on 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 their job. And they're like, okay, so what are we working with? And people are like, well, we've got this show, this show, this show, and the show that I was working on. They go, yeah, I don't like that. Uh, what else do you got? And that was it. Just at the whim of somebody's decision-making, a human being did not consider anything, not, nor, nor did they have to, but they didn't consider anything that went into putting that show together, conceptualizing it, and doing the demo and the sizzle reel and the people that were involved. Nah, that's it. And that was it. It was all gone. And in fact, the Food Network person from, uh, from Canada took me out for dinner, felt so bad. She goes, I don't usually take out people for dinner, but I know that I talked you up and I talked this project up to you. And I know that I made you believe that this was happening. And that is because I thought it was happening. And I'm so furious that someone came along and just fucking kicked us to the curb. Like we were a little fucking fruit fly. Um, mm -hmm. So she took me over dinner to break the news. I was like, Oh, this is, this is, uh, this is all right. That's great. But like, you can literally be just on the doorstep. And I can right. So that is a healthy attitude. I support that. Yeah, I guess it's just uh, really having, I guess, no expectation, just kind of like doing your best. And like literally until I get the phone call or I see it on TV, I'm just going to assume that it never happened to begin with. Right. And sometimes it's uh, at least for me, it's like there's jobs that I've gone for that I've wanted that I haven't gotten. And uh, sometimes that like for example, the family feud thing, knowing what it's actually like to be a warm-up comedian is like, first of all, does that fit your personality? Like I couldn't really imagine a world, like it doesn't, it just didn't fit who I was. There wasn't like, you have to be operating at such an extreme level of like excitement and like personality that like I really just couldn't get to no matter <laughs> how hard I tried. Um, and it's like, you wouldn't want to be in that position to begin with. Like, I, I wouldn't want to show up to work every day and be, you know, consumed with dread that like, I'm not gonna be able to do my job properly if I can't like really get to that point. Um, so it's like, I'm, I'm glad that it kind of went for me. Like, I'm glad it, it didn't work out because, uh, you know, there's going to be other things and it's, it's, you, it's an opportunity that you, you would have wanted because it could support a better lifestyle. But in terms of work, it would be extremely challenging. I've done it. I've done it for a, a sitcom called Spun Out that was, uh, that was in, hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in uh, filming in Toronto for a little while there. Uh, a couple of seasons, not a little while there. So I, I did the audience warm up for, I think, four episodes. 
It is intense. It's three hours of like, as soon as you sit down, okay, Ali, we need you. Okay, all right, hey, uh, what else we got? Ali, we need you. You're like always being called to be on. And you're like, I cannot do material because I'm going to run out of material early in hour two. I'm not going to do Muslim interrupted for this crowd, right? Like I'm not going to do my solo show. There's only a select amount of jokes I can do. So I'm going to start messing with people in the crowd. The crowd's only so large. The crowd is like 200 people. Can't go one by one messing with people. Okay, that hat. Okay, that's an interesting choice of dresses. Okay, that's great. And after a while, you're like, Geez, can you people, can I have some giveaways? Can you have good news, Ali? This today we have giveaways. Thank God. I'm giving the Starbucks gift card away, 20 bucks Starbucks gift card. And now I'm creating games for people. But you're like a clown for hire in a way you've never been before. And uh, it does require a certain personality. And uh, it's not for everybody. It certainly wasn't for me. It certainly wasn't. It was a great experience to have, to know right. that this for me. I, now I know that I can't, I can't do that. You know, some people can do that's, it. That's right. It also gives you motivation. Like I really loved the environment. I really liked, you know, meeting other people and you never know like what comes out of certain things. Like just, just being there, it's going to sound, it's annoying because I hate this because every comedian has been forced to believe that like you get paid an experience but it was really one of those things that was like very rich in experience just to kind of be there and yeah. you know get that feedback and, and be in that sort of environment. It was refreshing, it was nice. I think part of you probably feels like you're giving lip service to yourself right now, but I'll tell yeah. you that I've operated my entire career on just do your best because you never know who's around. You never know who's gonna see you. You never know what's gonna come of whatever opportunity. And I've made a career where I have a home and I feed four children on a regular basis. And I have, you know, I can travel this country. So I'm telling you, you're doing all the right things. I really, really feel like it. It's like, you're also managing your highs and your lows, right? So mentally, even though you started this chat by saying that you're pretty much losing your mind, I think you are in a very, you know, you're keeping it narrow. You're not, otherwise some people are like, this was the worst. I can't believe this set was so awful. I don't want to show my face. And it's like, this is amazing. This person liked me and that's going to be this, this, this. I think you're keeping yourself really even, right? You're keeping your, your blood sugar, not too high, not too right. low. It's interesting how many people you watch have a set. Like, I, I think I have a shared perspective. Uh, I, I share a, a, an outlook with you. And I think you would probably... <laughs> reflect on this too sometimes you have you you watch somebody have the worst set ever and then uh instead of leaving and going home and taking a week off of comedy they're like all right you guys want to go for chicken wings chicken wings why do you have to go find a hole and bury your head in it what are you talking about what do you how can you show yourself and uh, that, that is also truly impressive to feel, see people just either shake it off or live in this world. We're like, that ah, wasn't that bad. No, it was awful. That booker is never calling you again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's like, I don't want to be the person that like has, makes the mistake or like reads a bomb as like doing well and then just like walking around like things are fine. And then people are like, she's walking around like things are fine. But like, is she okay? Because that was terrible. Yeah. I, yeah. I know. Yeah. I once. So you uh, never want to do that. You never want to do it. I totally agree. And it, it's good. Yeah. It's healthy. 
because you get caught sometimes. You get caught where you've managed your emotions and you know it wasn't a great set. And then I don't know if this has ever happened to you in like these smaller towns. When I was in Grand Prairie, I, I remember this guy, you know, alpha male at a table of four other dudes. Hey, Ali, Ali, get over here. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe my hour of sweating and dancing around for this casino crowd in Grand Prairie wasn't all that bad. Maybe it was all right, actually. This guy's going to buy me a shot. And I walked over, all of a sudden, a little bit of confidence. And I get to the table. He goes, tell me something. Why the fuck is George Strombolapalapa, whatever his fucking name is, going to be hosting Hockey Night in Canada? I don't know, guys. I'm not actually his agent. Anyway, I'm going to I had to go see somebody, one of my many friends in Grand Prairie. I'm going to get I and I'll never forget that moment where I thought I was going to get a shot from a table. I'll never forget that moment and how ashamed I felt. Because I was like, you knew that, that set wasn't good. You knew that set wasn't good. Why did you think they were calling you over for something positive? And I don't like that. I live in shame about things like that. So that's why I also manage. I manage. I've never too. Don't let the good get to you. Don't let the bad get to you too much either, though. You know? That's right. If I, do, if I don't surpass my expectations of how the set is going to go, then I read it as terrible. I can confirm that about you. I can confirm, you can confirm that, that you are that. Yeah, I've, I remember uh, complimenting your set. I think it was a Laugh Out Loud set in, in Kitchener that you did. And I said, Julianne, that was a really excellent, or maybe it was in the weeks leading up to you were practicing. I said, that was a really great set. You looked really great up there, confident and, and really great delivery. And you were like, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. And I was like, <laughs> that's, the, that's the most monotone thing that was... I think she was being honest. I'm not sure. You know, your Mona Lisa vibe that you gave off. I was like, I don't, I don't think she, I don't think that meant a lot. But anyway, I said it because I meant My it. Mona Lisa vibe. I, oh God, I love that so much. That's so funny. <laughs> that is, I've gotten that several times where people come up to me and uh, they'll, they'll be like, hey, great job. And then I will literally, like, I will, it's almost like I'm mad at them for saying that to me. I'm like, thanks. Um, I remember that moment. Yep, I remember that. I think that was backstage at the actual festival itself. Um, anyway, that was uh, that was that was a really fun experience. I'm really glad we got to chat. This has been so refreshing. I wish that we had like more time, but we're at like an hour and a half. Hour. No, 15? we're. Oh my god. Yeah, oh my yeah, yeah. It is uh, Halloween, so I gotta go take a look at the uh, blue moon. Light my crystals up. Do my saging. <laughs> sacrifice an animal in the backyard. You know. Sage could also go in, in soup if you ever, like, you decide you don't want to burn it around the house anymore. Think of it as a, okay. you know, herb for, for food. Oh, nice. Just there. Yeah. Okay. Just, Noted. Noted. I think I may have left you with a, a fair amount of editing to do um, with the audio thing. I hope that... that's Oh, not at all. It'll take, like, two seconds. It was just, like, one little blip. But it, it's all good. Thank you so much for doing this podcast, Ali. I, it was really happy to talk to you. I hope that we get to do gigs sometime soon in the future. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Uh, but it's always so refreshing to get to talk to you. So pleasant. So nice. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you.